the highs and lows. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Uh, in 20 seconds, it'll be good afternoon. So, good timing. Uh, great to be with everybody. If you're joining us online, everyone in Alma, major shout out to you guys. We love you, and it's great to gather together. I grew up on an island um, on the west coast of Europe. And when I was a child, um, I would say I never really knew anybody that wasn't pretty much exactly like me. And by that, I mean looked like me, talked like me, same culture as me, same history as me. I never knew a person of a different religion. I never knew anyone who was rich or wealthy. I never knew anybody with a different skin color or who had a different accent to mine. I never knew anyone who spoke a different language. I never knew anybody who wasn't Catholic. I never knew anyone from another country. Who would ever want to go to Ireland anyway? It rains there all the time. <laughs> I see some hands up. It's a nice place. But back then, it's very much changed today, but back then, I would honestly say the immigration percentage into Ireland was probably like zero. You just never saw anybody that looked in any way different. And yet, I remember, particularly as a very young child, hearing outright racist jokes. Now, how on earth did that happen? It's an island. There's nobody really there that you could experience the tension of different with. And yet, I would hear them all the time. In the schoolyard, kids on the street. And I remember thinking, it's perfectly fine to laugh at those jokes, to join in. I remember uh, grown-ups making those jokes. And obviously, different time, different context. It wasn't Latinos or African Americans, not at all. It was kind of directed towards two groups of people. Chinese people, and what we called black people, and by that we meant people from Africa. And that's what the jokes were about. Now, how on earth do jokes like that find their way onto an island where there is virtually no one of a different race? Surely the absence of proximity, surely the absence of the possibility of having to experience the tension or friction of different ways Surely the fact that it wasn't there would mean that we would get a pass on that. But no. Despite the impossibility of even meeting another person from another country, somehow a sick, cruel, ungodly, and evil sentiment had found its way into conversation and into language and into attempts at humor and into the hearts and minds of men and women and children. And it's normal. That's fine, right? I mean, come on, it's just a joke. No one really gets hurt. Hmm. Now we look at the context of this country, where that's certainly not the case, where you have people from all over the world, and that has been the case for many, many years. I would say you could take that scenario and multiply it by a thousand. where the difficulty and the pain and the struggle that this country has experienced has been far more heightened. In the next 60 to 90 seconds, I want to simply lay out for you what I would suggest to you are simply 
basic historical facts uh, as they pertain to this country. And I realize that racism can be directed towards anyone from any race, but as you'll notice, it'll take you about two seconds, these particular historical facts um, are a description of African Americans. Here we go. African slave ships, civil war, an estimated three-quarters of a million people lost their lives, vagrancy laws, convict leasing, mandated racial segregation by law, Jim Crow laws still in existence in this country till 1954, the idea of separate but we're equal was finally struck down in 1954, only for two years later, 1956, for Jim Crow laws to actually rally back into this country again. Now we see segregation academies, many of which were supported by Christians. Now we have the beginning of the civil rights movement. We see protests and violence on the streets. And then we see this shift in the location of populations. And for the first time, we have this movement of inner city populations and then this massive spread out to suburbia. Back then, a real estate agent could lose their license to practice business if they sold a house in a white suburban area to a black or African-American family. Not allowed to do business anymore if they did that. We see massive shifts in socioeconomics. And then introduced into this country was a pretty widespread opioid addiction. Followed by that was an incarceration pandemic. And then we see, to greater and greater degrees, the breakdown of the family. Now, all of those items that I've just laid out give weight and challenge to either directly or indirectly to race relations in this country. And then for any of you who've got a few years under your belt, you can probably remember just a little time back, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years, and I bet you there's many of you in this room today who can remember particular specific situations where something happened to a person or a group and it became a tipping point. This particular series we're in has been asking the question, how do we respond to what's gone on in this country in the last few months? For the last three weeks, we've looked at our response to this COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're looking at the fact that in the year 2020, a police officer was kneeling on the back of a man's neck for almost nine minutes while he begged for air. And that has sparked another tipping point. That has sparked outrage. And not just in this country, but actually in countries all around the world. Now, I mentioned this last week. I'm going to say it again. I have never, ever brought politics into the pulpit. And I won't be doing so today. Today I'll be preaching from God's Word. What we're talking about is the value and the dignity of human beings. And as it happens, there is no voice stronger on that subject than the voice of God. 
Please notice, I did not say the voice of the church. Maybe we can do something about that. So what are we to do? Today I want to lay out to you two massive pillars that we see in the Word of God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, man made in the image of God. In the very first chapter of the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis, at the very dawn and birth of creation, God infuses every single human being with intrinsic and inherent value, which He Himself holds in the personhood of the Trinity when He makes this statement, let us make man in our image. Intrinsic value, intrinsic worth given to every single human being at the dawn of creation. A.W. Tozer says this, the doctrine of man made in the image of God is one of the most basic doctrines in the Bible. And yet it is one of the most elevating, enlarging, magnanimous, and glorious doctrines that I know. Listen to the late Ravi Zacharias. Man came up to Jesus. His intent is to humiliate Christ in front of everybody. It's a trick. He wants to trip up Jesus. He goes to him with a loaded question. And in front of him, he asks him, Is it okay that I pay my taxes to Caesar? That's a loaded question for that culture and time. Jesus looked at him and he said, Do you have a coin? He said, Yes, I do. Jesus said, Let me see that coin. And he holds it up. Whose image do you see on this coin? Caesar. He answers a genius response. Then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, I think he ought to have had a follow-up question. He didn't, but he really ought to have had a follow-up question. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He should have asked, well, what belongs to God? I think Jesus would have responded. Whose image is on you? No other founder of any worldview would have placed you, would have positioned you in that description. There's none. It's been known for centuries in Latin as imago Dei, the image of God. What this person was trying to do was to pit Jesus Christ against the political powers that be, but Jesus never succumbed to that. They tried to put him on a horse and tried to put a, a sword in his hand, and he refused to do that. He always resisted the temptation of power when they tried to make him ruler. Secular humanism will say this to every single person here today. You are the result of random processes. That's all you are. Christian theism says, no, you are the pinnacle, you are the crown, you are the most glorious in all that God has created. Christian theism says, you are knitted together in your mother's womb. Christian theism says to every single person here, you are not an accident. You are not the result of mere random processes. Christian theism says whether you are tall or beautiful or powerful whether you are small, whether you feel less than others, whether your body works well, or whether your body is broken in any shape or form, no matter the color of your skin, no matter the acumen of your mind, you are the crowning glory of, of the Supreme One. 
And as a result, you have inherent worth. You have inherent dignity. You have inherent value. Even if you've wrecked it, even if you've made the worst mistakes, even if you've blown it in life and you've ruined your chances, even if your biography is a story of selfishness and violence and anger and ego, you are the apple of his eye. I want to make a statement. I'm going to ask you for a big fat amen on this one. The God we serve, the Christ we follow, the message of this holy book cannot comprehend or align itself with ideas like racism or classism or sectarianism or any form of caste system. Amen? And as we look at history, right up until today, right up until this present age and this present day, we see cultures that seem to claim allegiance to Jesus. And you'd go, that's great. And yet at the same time, it seems as though they embrace racism. They take something as utterly absurd as the color, the shade, the tone, the lightness or the darkness of an organ in your body. Your skin is an organ. It's really just about how much melatonin do you have in that organ, in your body. They take that as the basis upon which they will distribute worth and status, and therefore, how I will treat you as a human being. They use that as the basis on which they will then decide whether or not to give you love or to take love away from you and to hate you. What do you say to that? No! In the name of Jesus Christ, no! That is not the Word of God. That is not the heart of God. That is not the presence of God. And to those who would look at Christianity and point their fingers in disgust and distaste and horror and say, see, if that's your Christianity, you can keep it. You can shove it. I don't want to do anything to do with that. Here's what I would say. That's not Christianity. That is an abuse of Christianity. It is a marring and a warping of the activity of creation and the intent of creation. When God said, let us make man in our image. Now think back through history. Consider the centuries, the millennia that we have an awareness of. What was it that actually recognized the ugliness of this disobedience and sin? This temperament that every single one of us has that has raised its head and given expression to hatred in the form of racism. What is it down through the millennia that finally said, I'm going to stand up and say something about that. Hold on a second. Whose voice was it down through the millennia that said, no, and there's actually a standard and we're going to apply this standard against this kind of hatred? It is the standard of God Himself. Do not miss this. Today, I have come to unequivocally declare to you the Word of God. You were made in the very image of God. You are lovingly knitted together in what the Word of God calls the secret place. Your mother's womb. Every cell. Every sinew. Every part of you. And what does that image look like? God says, let us make man in our image. 
This is spoken at the time of creation. But what does that image look like? Look at this scripture I want to read to you right now. And I want you to find it in the scripture. Notice this. It's a New Testament scripture. But notice the context of creation. This is the standard. This is the voice that actually spoke into such hatred. Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have supremacy, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is a powerful piece of scripture. Is racism wrong? Yes, 100%, a thousand percent. But by what standard is it wrong? It is the standard of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Many theologians for years now, have been asking themselves the question, what does that actually mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? And some people have ventured the idea, well, it's our capacity for creativity. That's great. Others have ventured the thought that actually it's our capacity for rationale that we don't really see elsewhere in, crea in creation. Others have suggested that it's our our ability to comprehend morality, that we actually are able to look at something and say that that is right and that is wrong. And while all of those things are wonderful and yes and amazing, I actually think it goes further than that. Can I say to you that every person in this room is an image bearer because, I know this sounds rudimentary, because they've been called by God to reflect the image of God. Image bearers represent God on the earth. So you are called to His purpose. You are an image bearer of immeasurable worth because you have this high calling over your life and that high calling, that purpose, is actually dominion. It is bringing the rule and the reign and the kingdom of God to bear on the earth. What is that? We just read it in Colossians. He is the supreme one. He came to reconcile all things to Himself by His shed blood on the cross. That's what you're called to reflect. That is what it means to be, an to be in the image of God. You are reflecting the Christ of the cross. It ennobles you. It sets you apart. It marks you uniquely from the rest of the entirety of creation. Jesus puts it like this. Blessed are the peacemakers. What a calling. What a thing to do with your life. It's, I think, the high point of the greatest sermon ever, ever said, ever spoken. The Sermon on the Mount. I think it's the crescendo. There's a lot of blessed be these people and those people. Blessed are the peacemakers. As Christ followers, as image bearers, we're waging peace. We're deliberately pushing hard for peace. And so in the context of racism and prejudice and judgmentalism and bias, 
based on skin or appearance or where you're from or what you know or how much money you have in your pocket or whatever else you want to conjure up. Actively, we are here to bring peace to, to bear. Church, is this making sense? Number one, first pillar, man made in the image of God. Second pillar, it is a mandate. Love God, love your neighbor. Can I suggest to you, you can't do one of those. You can't. It says all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some commentators believe and have certainly said that they're on equal footing. They're pretty much the same thing. First John has very strong language around this. It says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a, you're a liar. You're a liar if you say that. So if you have hatred in your heart towards another human being, you can't say that you're loving God. You're a liar. The first question came to pit Jesus Christ against political authority. You know, should I pay my taxes to Caesar? And so a second question comes Jesus' way. It's another attempt to trip him up and publicly humiliate him. This is not religious. This is not um, political authority. This is now a question against religious authority. Uh, against, it's law against law. So this guy walks up to him. And they loved Moses. Man, did they have Moses on a pedestal. Moses gave us 613 laws. Moses, he is the man. 613. Jesus, in front of all these people, can you tell us right now, what is the most important commandment? What's fascinating to me is Jesus really doesn't answer the guy's question the way he asks it. He doesn't give him one commandment. He gives him two. He says, the most important thing you can do is love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor. There's two in there. Why? Why did he not give one? Because hinged on one was the inextricable imperative of the other. You simply cannot say that you love God and you hate another human being. The imperative to love God is to take a look at all Ten Commandments. If I were to try to find a word that would sum up the Ten Commandments, one word to kind of summarize what are they, I would use the word sacred. What the Ten Commandments is saying, it's so funny how people look at it and think, thanks for all the do-nots, Jesus. The Ten Commandments is saying this, your life is sacred. Your marriage is sacred. The relationship between a parent and a child is sacred. The relationship between you and God is sacred. People's property is sacred. Don't break that sacredness. Don't do that. Not only are all of those things sacred, but your neighbor is sacred too. So you can't go and violate your neighbor's sacredness and then look your neighbor, at your neighbor in the face and say, oh, by the way, I love Jesus. You can't do it. What Jesus is saying is remarkable. The value given to you is intrinsic. Every human life is worthy. It is a life of value. That is the mandate of Judeo-Christian teaching. 
Your life has intrinsic worth, no matter your station, your skin color, your education, your politics, your sexuality, your age, your country of birth, your money, your connection. Your life has intrinsic worth. There is a nobility about you. And any time you think other than that, either about yourself or about another human being, what you're doing is you are saying yes and you are embracing a lie in your life and you're giving expression to that, whether it's about you or any other human being. Jesus is so powerful. This idea that every life has value. And we see in his ministry, there is a disproportionate amount of time that he brings his message to those who didn't believe that. There's a disproportionate amount of time in his ministry that he goes to the very people that everyone else said were worthless. And he says, great, I'm going to go to you. You're marginalized, I want you to hear that you are of immense value. He seemed to always veer in that direction, rather than those people who seemed to have their act together and were very sophisticated. And so when he stops to talk to a woman at the well, who no one would talk to, who had actually had five broken marriages in her life, and the disciples are looking at the situation going, why would you talk to her? They don't get it. When this woman comes with an alabaster jar full of perfume and breaks it open and pours it down on his feet and she's weeping. And people are like, we know where she gets her money from. The Pharisees are looking at this. Okay, if Jesus knew who she was and what she did, he wouldn't let her touch him. And then Jesus says, no, I want children to come to me. I I want poor people to come to me. I want to actually put my hands and I want to touch people who have leprosy. The imperative of love and compassion came to the marginalized of society on these two precepts. Every human being made in the image of God. Love God. Love your neighbor. Church, what do we do with all of this stuff? I mean, what a year. And you could feel it. And like, this is Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Alma, Michigan. Probably not like the center of the planet Earth. But you could still feel it. But there were places where this was just far more tense. And the temptation, you look at the TV and you feel it. And you see it in front of you. You pick up your phone and you, you see these streams coming in. You're like, oh my goodness. This is horrible. And sometimes you look at the stuff and you, like, we just get angry. You just get livid about it. And you want to just roar and scream at something. And so you do. And then afterwards you're like, I don't know that that did anything. Or you look at the whole thing and it just says, it just feels like it's just so big. I don't know what I could say or what I could do that would even make a dent. Well, I want to say some hard things to you right now uh, that you may not want to hear, but I'm going to say them to you anyway. And it is about the difference that you can make. Because three things. Number one, we must do more than quietly say that we are praying. We must publicly say that this is wrong. When you see racism, when you smell it, 
when you hear it, when you come anywhere close to it, I'm going to ask you to open up your mouth and condemn it. Don't be shy about it. Don't apologize. Shut it down with your voice. These are not jokes that we will shrug our shoulders at. Go ahead and ruffle feathers and stand out as a person, a follower of Christ, who just has no tolerance for hatred and racism. Number two, the church needs to address the sins of silence, the sins of apathy, and the sins of indifference. Now, that's a very strong statement for me to make. What I'm actually suggesting to you today is representative culpability. We see this all the time in the Bible. Actually, juggernauts in the Bible, big hitters, going to God, God, the nation's a mess. I'm going to come to you on behalf of the nation. In fact, so many times, the people who were praying on behalf of the country hadn't done the awful things that the country had done, and yet they seemed to lump themselves in with a whole bunch of horrific, sinful things, disobedient things, and they said, look, I'm one of them. God, would you please come and heal this nation? Would you please come and forgive us? We're talking like Moses, Daniel. They came before God. They hadn't really done the thing wrong themselves. Who does it remind you of when somebody who hadn't done anything wrong lumps himself amongst those who have done all the wrong things for forgiveness? He who knew no sin became sin. How about we become like Jesus Christ in this? Representative culpability. Okay, God, I'm here on behalf of a nation to ask you on my knees, would you come and forgive us and heal this nation and heal this community? And if you've been paralyzed and fearful, you can know that that's not from the Father. If you've looked at it and said, well, I'm not like that. That doesn't actually affect my life. That's not my problem. I think you need to be on your knees. I'm directing our church to come before God and to ask Him to heal our land and to forgive us. Number three, final one. Stop talking about taking a step towards the thing that scares you the most in all of this. You have to move towards them in love. Noticed I, word, I used the word them. Who's them? I'm referring to people. Particularly, people who are not like you. People who are different than you. People who look different to you. Not an idea, not a philosophy, not some clever thing that somebody wrote in a book. Move towards a person. And if today you feel paralyzed or you feel fearful, here's what you can know. If that's how you feel, you can know that's not from the Father. He doesn't paralyze people in fear. You can know that's not from God in my life. I'm going to put that aside. He doesn't want anyone to live in fear. Move forward as a peacemaker towards the very thing that maybe you don't even fully understand it. Or maybe it's an issue and you're not really sure how to fix that or how to address it or how to say the right thing at the right time in the right way and to say it perfectly. I pray that every Christ follower in this room has wonderful relationships with Christians and non-Christians who are white and black and brown and even Irish. 
Take these two truths. I want you to see and treat every person biblically. Look at that black man. Look at that Asian woman. Look at that brown-skinned family. And honor them with the love of Jesus Christ. As image bearers of the King. And as you love God, and as you pour love, you are now reflecting the image of God. And when you do that, when you reflect the image of the Father, you're doing what the Father does all the time. Let me close with this. Let me show you the heart of God. Don't miss it. Let me show you the end of all days when God finally comes and says, I will heal all of these and take away all this pain and all these tears and all this death and all of that. I will take it all away. Revelation chapter 7. Don't miss it. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. It's huge. Don't miss this, guys. Every nation. Every tribe, every people, every language. Do you see it? And look what the scripture says. What are they doing? Every nation, people, tribe, what are they doing? They are standing. They're standing in the presence of God, the one who has dressed them in these robes. And I want to ask you, church, right now, in fact, right now, would you do that? Would you stand in the presence of God? And what I want to ask you to do is we're going to read this scripture out loud together. Don't be shy. You can stand. If you're watching online, everyone in Alma, if you're in your kitchen, if you're in your sitting room, I want you to stand to your feet and out loud with gusto and passion and fire in your belly, I want you to read from Revelation chapter 7. And we will join with a multitude giving praise to the one who we look just like. Let's start from the very beginning again. Verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, come on, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Church, would you pray with me? Father, would you give us brave words? We ask you for the courage to speak up and confront racism on every turn. We ask for forgiveness, for indifference, and for apathy, for silence. We ask for forgiveness for a neutral response. On behalf of the church, on behalf of this country, we repent of slavery, and bias, and judgment, and a deficit of love. God, I pray that you would fill us with a sensitivity and care, and kindness, and understanding. I pray that this church would be flooded with relationships that exemplify what it looks like for very different cultures, and languages, and skin tones, and preferences to share in the family of God, and in life, and in this community with tremendous joy and laughter as we wage peace in this community, in this country, and in this world. We declare with our lips, 
that our God, the King of kings, you are greater than all the highs and all the lows. And all God's people said, church, I love you. That is a hard message. Thank you for receiving that into your hearts. I bless you.